The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning, church. My name is Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here. And last week, I had the joy of preaching, to you, it's, it's preaching God's word to you, and we walked through a portion of scripture that was probably new to some of you. Actually, I heard from some who were uh, longtime believers who were like, wow, Jesus said that, and he did. Um, It was a surprisingly severe story that Jesus told about being ready at all times for the future day when Jesus would return to judge the world. Now, (laughs) I started working here in May, and I have joked with Greg about this a few times this week, but... I've preached here six times, and uh, two of those times revolved around a a demon possession, and now two of those times have revolved around an exhortation and warning. So uh, at first I was the demon possession guy, now I'm the exhortation guy, but don't worry, (laughs) I do love preaching the Word of God, and all of this is beneficial. I think we just made the schedule and went with it, right? It didn't land this way on purpose. So uh, yeah, so I I am now the exhortation guy. So today's scripture... We'll, uh, we'll continue the theme of judgment, and Jesus continues to speak in ways that are shocking to people who are not acquainted with the real Jesus revealed in Scripture, because the real Jesus is very different from the Jesus that most of society knows, right? When we read about him, we understand better who he is, not just the, the way that people talk about him and assume that he is. And Jesus continues to warn his listeners that they may not exactly understand who he really is. And they didn't understand at that time. He had not revealed everything about himself. And they may not understand uh, all that his ministry may do in their lives and in our life. He doesn't mince words, and he tells us exactly what to expect, so we shouldn't be surprised. And his words are not the kind of scripture that you find on, on a decorative potholder or an inspirational calendar or even a, embroidered into a pillow. Although if you wonderful women who quilt on Thursdays make me a wall hanging that says, I came to cast fire on the earth, Jesus, I would certainly hang that up in my office because that's my weird sense of humor. But um, seriously though, from your experience with Christianity and scripture, Can you imagine Jesus saying the words, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled? Because he did. He did say those words. That's why it's important for us to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And Jesus isn't the sentimental white man with long hair saying words of wisdom and feel-good nuggets of encouragement. He's the real God-man with power from heaven and fearful, and wonderful, and full of human personality because he was human, and full of divine goodness because he was God. And we should recognize the meaning of his hard sayings because they are profitable words for us to learn and understand. And, and I want to make this, Greg and I talked about this this week, I want to make sure you understand that when Jesus says hard sayings, he's not being antagonistic. 
He's not being antagonistic. He's telling us the truth for our benefit. Peter calls Jesus' words the words of eternal life, words that will benefit us if we heed them. So let's go ahead and, tell, and talk uh, about the Scripture. Let's read the Scripture from Luke 12, verses 49 through 59. We're going to finish up chapter 12 today, and if you are using the Bible that's in the, front of the, seat, in the back of the seat in front of you, you'll find it on page 872. It'll also be on the screens. Luke 12, verses 49 through 59. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus talking, by the way. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three, They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You'd know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, the officer put you in prison, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we want to start by thanking you for your word. You have the words of eternal life. That's very evident in the scripture today, as we're going to learn. And I pray that you would help me to faithfully teach this scripture. And I also pray that you, by your spirit, would work in people's hearts to help us to heed this exhortation, this warning that we're receiving this morning. We love you. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, one thing's very clear after reading that text is that I I need to explain a few things so that we're all on the same page as we read this. The three paragraphs that, we, that I just read seem like three disconnected lessons, but they're actually not. They're intimately connected. The theme is still the coming judgment, and the idea Jesus is getting across is readiness. So let's start with the biblical truth today. This is a, uh, the main takeaway that I believe this text compels us to understand. Biblical truth. The day of judgment is coming, so recognize what God is doing in the world and repent. The day of judgment is coming, so recognize what God is doing in the world and repent. 
And I think it might be helpful if I remind you of what Jesus' ministry entails, and that will explain how we get to this day of judgment. For anyone who wasn't here last week, I'm saying this for your benefit. We talked about this last week, but this will be a good refresher. God's son, Jesus, lived a perfect life to the glory of the Father. And that's something that we have failed to do as people. And then he was crucified on a cross to pay the penalty for our failures. After this, he rose from the dead, after having been bodily dead, actually dead, rose from the dead, defeating death itself. And then after a few weeks of hanging around in his resurrected body, he ascended to heaven, but he told us that he would eventually return to judge the world and make all things right again. And when we talk about the day of judgment, that's the day that we're discussing, the day when Jesus will come back and he will divide the world into two groups. The first is made up of those who trust Jesus for the free gift of salvation and prove that trust with obedience and repentance. And these people will be with Jesus in the new creation. The second group is, peop- is those who, who trust in themselves or an idol. And by not trusting in Jesus, they insist on having their sins instead of having the love and forgiveness that God offers. And these people will be judged to eternal hell and den- for denying the love of the eternal God. And I'm going to be clear, I know that this is probably very hard from some people to swallow the truth of that statement. God makes the rules by merit of him being God and us being his creatures. And it takes humility to see the truth of eternity that some will be condemned to hell and some will be in heaven. And to be honest, I I, I think it's sadly ridiculous for us. I do it often. I'm not condemning any of you for this, but... It's ridiculous for us as human beings to think that we should know how things should exist and how things should be ordered in the world. We are not God, and we did not create all that exists. We do not have that authority, and so um, we need to just trust the ways of God as he reveals them to us. What sends people to hell at the judgment is the pride of believing that we know better than God, or that we exist as the God of our own lives. And if we trust in God's ways instead, if we accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers, we will be saved through the judgment. We need to believe this truth. It's a hard one, but it's, it's real. And the way that we believe this truth, the way that we act out our belief is by repenting from our sins and doing what pleases God. The day of judgment is coming, so recognize what God is doing in the world and repent. That's what this entire scripture is really about, but we're going to dive in deeper. Now let's look at three supporting truths that support that biblical truth that we get from the text, and it will help us understand things a little bit better. I'm going to read verses 49 through 53 again. Just as a refresher, I think it's good to read the scripture again to know exactly what we're talking about. This is verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What happened to the Prince of Peace? (laughs) What what happened to the message of the angels at the birth of Jesus who, who proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased? Why cast fire on the earth, Jesus? I'll explain the answers to those questions. Our first, our first supporting truth is number one, the work of Jesus brings both peace and division. The work of Jesus brings both peace and division. Here in chapter 12, Jesus is making a very interesting point. If we look at the whole of Scripture and the whole of what Jesus said, what has been said about him, we can definitely say that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth. But the day of worldwide peace will be a later day. Pronounced and remains. The truth is, the peace that Jesus will bring comes against everything that a sinful world stands for. The world stands for self, right? And Jesus lays down his life in self-sacrifice. The world loves sin, and Jesus loves holiness. The world loves the darkness, and Jesus is the light of the world. The world mixes with the kingdom of God about as well as oil mixes with water. So it makes sense that when Jesus comes and brings his kingdom it would cause some division, right? Right? So he comes against everything that the sinful world loves. So the world rejects his ways and wars against him. And Jesus certainly came to bring peace. But but for the kingdom of peace to come in, the kingdom of darkness must be banished. And therefore division ensues. You might say that the way that Jesus talks about division and peace here is kind of in the same way that if a surgeon said, you think I've come to heal this person? No, I tell you, I've come to cut them open. Right? Pain sometimes comes before healing. And division sometimes comes before peace. Now, I don't want to dive too far into this next rabbit hole, but there is an implication that I think will help us understand and have better expectations of God when things like this happen. Jesus did not just come to bring peace. That's a myth. Sometimes division is necessary, and J.C. Ryle, the theologian we keep bringing up in the book of Luke, uh, he's the one who helped me see this, Peace at all costs is an idol. If peace becomes an idol, we will often sacrifice truth in order to keep peace. That is the wrong thing to do. We have to have godly wisdom to know how to implement this truth because sometimes we can be so hard with the truth that we cause unnecessary division But 
There are some times our friends need to hear the truth, even if it hurts the friendship. And churches need to tell the truth about things like abuse, even if it causes some chaos within the community. It's necessary. And on the flip side, also in the positive, churches need to hold fast to the truth of God's word and his doctrines, like holding to a biblical sexual ethic, even if the society around us condemns us for it. Now, that's not a license to be a jerk about it, like I said, but we need to hold to these truths even if we can't keep the peace. Peace is not worth accepting a lie. And God's truth will often bring division, but I assure you, one day, it will bring peace. And I'm thankful for Jesus' words here because Jesus addressing this subject helps us have better expectations when those baffling, those baffling times come when we experience division and we go, wait, what are you doing, God? He's addressing it here. Now, let's address this text more closely. Jesus uses some difficult language to describe his ministry. So let's clarify his meaning. When Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled, this language has been used before in the book of Luke, but by a guy named John, John the Baptist. We've heard of him before. In Luke 3, 16 through 17, this is what John says. John answered the crowd saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Talking about Jesus. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into, into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable what? Fire. So if we understand John the Baptist's words, written in the same book as Luke, the fire that Jesus wants to cast on the earth is actually judgment. And the fire of judgment that Jesus is referring to is not just this condemning you know, judgment of the earth. It also is a fire that refines. So when you refi refine silver and gold, you apply fire to it, and it separates the precious metal from the dross, which is the impurities. And in the same way, in the same way, the fire of judgment brings division between those who have been purified by the work of Jesus and those who remain impure because of unrepentant sin and idolatry. It's a refining fire of judgment. The refining fire of Jesus also divides people before the day of judgment. That is what Jesus is talking about, about division between people. There aren't always, there is not always peace when we obey Jesus rather than the world. Darkness wants nothing to do with the light. And friendship and even family will sometimes, not always, be divided over the impact Jesus makes on our lives in the present day. Jesus comes to bring both peace and division. And what about this part that Jesus says about, 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And it's a confusing statement at first, but what Jesus is talking about is the baptism of being immersed in suffering and death. He says he is distressed until his sufferings are complete. You could say that Jesus is in anguish until his sufferings are over. He longs to have them over. He longs for what it will accomplish. Both. And church, the way, the way that he talks about his suffering reveals something so beautiful. Christ was completely aware of how torturous his sufferings would be. He was in anguish over it. He was distressed over it. But he, was, he had an unwavering commitment to the Father's plan. And this evidence is, it shows how passionately God, uh, sorry, how passionately Jesus loves the Father, but it also shows how passionately Jesus loves his church, you and I. He knew that he would be crushed for the iniquities of mankind. And he was still bent on following through with it. Christ loves us deeply. And he's showing it even when he talks about judgment. He loves us so deeply that he would die for us. But the sad truth is, not everyone loves Jesus in return. Oftentimes our own families do not believe on Jesus and we can find ourselves with different value systems, different allegiances, different lifestyles and different purposes than our loved ones when we trust in Jesus. And Jesus is not ignorant of this phenomenon. He addressed it. We need to recognize it. He doesn't want us to be shocked when that happens. And his foresight gives us reason to trust him through it all. When you put your faith in Jesus, your parents may frown upon your decision. When you put your faith in Jesus, your spouse might hate your new way of life. Or your mother-in-law may regret her son's decision to marry you. These are realities. That can happen when we follow Jesus. And we should certainly grieve this sort of division. I don't think Jesus doesn't grieve this division, but Christ will one day end our grief. Your mother did not step down from her heavenly throne to rescue you. Your brother did not die on a cross where you belonged. Your best friend will not judge the world in righteousness. Your spouse is not the spotless holy lamb that could remove the burden of your sin. But Jesus, Jesus is all of those things and more. Christ alone is worthy of the cost Say it with me. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. And may we never forget his worth. If you've not experienced the division that happens when darkness wars against the light of Jesus, if you've not experienced division among people, I assure you, you will experience it one day. But don't be surprised. And know that Christ is worthy.
Let's move on. Luke 12, 54 through 56. The second paragraph of today's text. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? It may seem like Jesus is changing subjects here into the weather, but he's not. He's making another point about who he is and the judgment he will bring. So our second supporting truth is this. Number two, we must recognize what God is doing in the world. We must recognize what God is doing in the world. Why must we recognize what God is doing? About his judgment and about his life and about what he would do in his baptism and his sufferings. Why must we recognize what God is doing? It's because he's given us so much evidence that we will be without excuse on the day of judgment. And his hearers that day could interpret the weather, but they couldn't interpret what was happening right in front of them. Who is Jesus' audience here? The Jews, right? It's the Jewish people. And he was telling the Jews how audacious it was, and he even calls them hypocrites because they could predict the weather. And they couldn't see what was happening in front of them. The kingdom of God had come And his people, his own people, were oblivious. And it's not like he hid himself in the shadows and spoke in whispers. He stood there in front of them, and he told stories about the kingdom that he was bringing. It wasn't hidden. The Jews had volumes, volumes, scrolls, whole scrolls called the law and the prophets. And with all of that information that foretold about who he would be, they missed him. And they thought the Messiah would be an earthly king, someone strong and mighty in the way that they thought, and someone who would overthrow their Roman overlords and institute a new government. They did not expect the humble Jesus or someone meek and poor. They definitely didn't expect someone who would die at the hands of Rome. That's not what the Jews were expecting. So how did they miss it? This is how. They knew what they wanted. They didn't know what God wanted. They may have read the scriptures, but like us, we're not exempt from this. Many of them paid attention to the parts that they liked while ignoring the parts that they didn't like. They had a bias that clouded the truth even though the truth was clearly written right in front of them. And there were certainly ways that the Messiah was painted as a conquering king. He conquers his enemy. He does. But his enemy is sin and death, not necessarily Rome. And he rules the nations. He certainly rules the nations, but he rules them on another level altogether. He makes them pawns in his grand design because his kingdom is not of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's above it all. And they missed him altogether. And they should have paid closer attention to the whole counsel of God's word. You cannot read Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, without realizing that the meek and poor Jesus fits the bill for the Messiah. He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is Isaiah 53, 2-5. And while the Jews would look at that and ignore these verses in some ways, now we read this scripture and see the glory and grandeur of God, amen? But friends, we can amen that all we want and ignore the fact that we're guilty of the same sin. Jesus calls them hypocrites for, not, for being able to predict the weather, read the signs in the sky, while being unable to recognize the Son of God whom they worship. But our society is privileged with so much information that our guilt will be piled to the sky if we don't recognize what God has been doing all along in the world. The Bible is so easily accessible to us, and yet we trust the truth of Fox News and Anderson Cooper over the apostles Peter, Luke, and Paul. There's such incongruence in the way that we see the world from the way that Jesus saw it, and the way that he writes about it in the Word of God. We read the signs. I mean, we can read the signs all day long to make sure that we don't sell the stock too early. We can't read the signs that Jesus calls us to repentance. We read the signs in the sun and the moon to make sure the fishing will be optimal that day, but we can't read the signs that God calls us to be an active member of a church family. We read the signs that it's time to change our eating habits and so that we can live a healthier lifestyle, but we can't read the signs that changing our behavior will lead to spiritual health. We read the signs to get 3,000 miles away on vacation, but we can't read the signs showing us that Jesus leads us back to God. The signs pointing to what God is doing are clear. They are unobscured. They are written in this book, and the light of the world walked among us to illuminate our path and show us the way. We cannot ignore it. He warns us of the judgment of mankind, and it is fast approaching. We must see what God is doing. We must learn to read the signs of God's kingdom like the Jews were able to read the signs of the weather. We must heed the call to repentance, and we must not be hypocrites. The truth has been placed in front of us on a silver platter. And church, so often, we crawl out of our seat and eat the dog's food. We will have no, day, no excuse on the day of judgment if we do not put our faith in Jesus and obey his commands. And the truth is, we must know how to respond. That would be the next thing to know. How do we respond to the work of that God is doing in the world. And that's exactly what Jesus addresses next. So let's look at Luke 12, 57 through 59, the last paragraph of our scripture today. 
And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So we know that Jesus comes to bring both peace and vision, and we know that we must recognize what God is doing in the world, but how do we respond? Number three, it's our third supporting truth. We must be reconciled to God and repent. We must be reconciled to God and repent. To me, this is probably the most hard-hitting part of the scripture that we're reading today. Again, it seems like Jesus is making a hard right into a subject that has nothing to do with his previous sayings. And it's kind of weird until you recognize that what, he just read, what we just read is a parable. It's a parable. He's using an illustration that's easy to relate to to help us understand a spiritual truth. So I'm just going to spell it out for us so there's no question as to what Jesus is talking about in this scripture where we need to settle with our accuser on the way before we go to court. In this parable, we are the ones who are accused of wrongdoing. The listeners, us. And we're going to court to stand before a judge. And it's pretty easy to realize once you see this as a parable that Jesus is the judge. And he's the judge on the day of atonement. Or the day of, ju- the day of judgment, sorry. And who is our accuser? That's the big question. Who is our accuser? Is it Satan? Not here. Is it sin? Kind of, but let's get a little bit more specific. The accuser is the law of God. This parable is about how we are criminals charged with breaking the law of God and we are 100% guilty as charged. If you read that parable over again, there's no question as to whether we are guilty. There is implicit guilt of the person who is accused. We are 100% guilty as charged of breaking the law of God. And if we don't settle our debt before the day of judgment, we will have to fulfill the entirety of our sentence, which is an eternity of suffering in hell. Now, understanding that, I think it's important for us to understand what law we have broken. What are the laws of God? Let's get a little refresher on that. Jesus says that the entire law, we're just going to summarize it, by the way. I'm not going to read the whole law. That's a long, <laughs> that's a long book. Uh, but Jesus says that the entire law hangs on two commandments. Two commandments. Everything hangs on these two. They'll be on the screen. This is Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. So he summarizes the law here for us. So if we wish to be in good standing with God, we have to be able to answer yes to these questions on the screen. 
Have I loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind without fail? And have I loved my neighbor as myself without fail? We're talking perfectly, never having broken it. I'll tell you the answer to that question, both those questions. The answer is no. I haven't. You haven't. No one has. No one has fulfilled all of these laws summed up with these two. And so we are about to stand before a judge with the law condemning us, and that judge is the all-knowing God of creation from whom nothing is hidden. And all of our wrongdoings are just laid bare before Jesus. We cannot hide from his perfect judgment. And one day, he will cast the fire of judgment on the earth, separating the gold from the dross and the weed from the chaff, those hidden in Christ from those who rejected his grace. And the parable states that we will not get out and we will never get out until we have paid every last penny of an eternal debt, which can't be paid back. So we're never getting out. It's a lot, guys, I know. And by telling this parable, Jesus in his kindness is pleading with his hearers, saying, he's encouraging us to settle with our accuser before we see him on the day of judgment. He's the judge, and he's the one saying, settle with your accuser. Settle with him. Don't wait for that day when I will judge you. This is a mercy that he tells us all of this. Because if we see him on the day of judgment, we have not settled with our accuser, it will not go well for us. And how do we settle with our accuser if we are guilty as charged? That, my friends, is the question of the ages. That is the question that all of us need answering. That guilt in your heart when you sin and you do wrong, that is us asking that question. How do we settle our charges? We can't settle them without Jesus. We, we can't just say that we'll do better because we're already guilty. We're going to need a unique advocate. And there's only one person who was ever born, and he was not born in uh, sorry, he was, there's only one person who was not born in sin. And that person was born of a virgin. And there's only one person who never broke the law of God, who loved God perfectly and his neighbor perfectly. There's only one person who is qualified to be just and the justifier. The one who is just as the judge and the one who justifies us at the judgment. And he just so happens to be the judge. Here's the trick. The judge can't just relax the law. It's his law. He can't just relax it. So instead of relaxing the law, making it easier... The judge took the sentence upon himself. If you can't see the beauty of that statement, I don't know what to tell you. If the law accuses you today, if you have ever felt guilt in your heart at all, you need to know that the judge has taken the sentence for that sin upon himself. 
In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Where we failed to do what the law required, Jesus fulfills it, and then he credits that success to our account when we trust in him for forgiveness. He's paid the price. He's, he's taken the sentence of, our, of, our, of the judgment of our sin upon himself. Jesus reconciles us to God. That's the way we say it. Jesus reconciles a broken relationship by, leading him, by going to the cross and paying for our sins. And church, that's what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I realize that, that I'm talking with a lot of biblical language. I'm using a lot of biblical terms. I think that's understandable given we're talking about the Bible. I'm teaching it to you today, but I want to accommodate anybody here who has, has not been familiar with these terms. I'm just going to state it in just a few sentences for you. Whether you believe it or not, there is a truth that's undeniable that we have to accept. We are guilty, all of us, of breaking the law of our Creator. None of us have loved Him perfectly, and none of us have loved our neighbors perfectly. The penalty for breaking that law is suffering and death, eternal. But Jesus, he satisfies that penalty for us by dying on the cross and he gives us new life by rising from the grave. Trust in Jesus is how we can be back in good standing with God. We are not in good standing unless we trust in Jesus and what he's done for us. It's as simple as that. So we... Each one of us need to choose how we are going to respond. You can reject that truth or trust that Jesus offers us forgiveness for free. For free. And here's my encouragement to you as you decide how to respond. Trust in him today. Turn away from evil and commit to doing what pleases him. If you trust in him and obey him with your life, proving your trust, you will receive everlasting life in our life giver's presence. And you might say to yourself in your heart, I am far too gone. I've been living this way of life for far too long. There's no hope for me. Or maybe you're saying, because of your experience in life, I'm just not worth the, that kind of love to a God who is holy and pure. And you might be saying to yourself, this sounds like some sort of fairy tale therapy. None of that is true. None of that's true. Jesus always reveals himself to us at the right time, even if it's late in life. He has set his love on you. None of us were worthy of that, but if Jesus decides to set his love on you, he thinks that that is the appropriate place for his love to be. 
And reality, my friends, is far better than any fairy tale. The day of judgment is coming. So recognize what God is doing in the world and repent of our sin. You can receive this free gift of salvation, the free gift of God's love, if you will just trust him and commit yourself to him. And to all my friends who are here already today who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, the scripture you, you have heard preached, that I have heard preached today, it calls us to put away our remaining sin. Put it away. The sin that we continue in, that we know we should not harbor in our hearts or in our behaviors, put it away. It's a call to remember the day that we will be judged and to see the Lamb of God with a renewed love. You will pass through the fire of judgment unscathed, even glorified, because of Jesus' ministry to you. Jesus heard the condemnation of our accuser and responded by reconciling that relationship. Love him if you trust in him today. Love him with a renewed love. Obey him with a renewed will and praise him with a renewed appreciation. He is your savior and he is your king. And all of us are blessed because of it. And if there's anyone here who wishes to receive Jesus for the first time as your Lord and your savior, Please come afterwards and talk to me. I would love to talk with you about receiving Jesus. We'd love to help you. Pastor Greg, he'll be in the back at the end of the service. Some of our elders may be back there. If you want to go talk to him because you're used to seeing him preach up here most of the time, go talk to Greg. The person who brought you today, if you're invited, the reason they brought you here is to hear this message. The message of the gospel, the good news as we call it, that Jesus has saved us from our sin. Talk to your friend. We would love to help you along in your new way of life. And in closing, I think it's appropriate as one of your pastors to read the words of Paul from 1 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12, because it resonated with my own longing for my own church congregation. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work in faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you. It's Greg's prayer for you. It's the elder's prayer for you. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Your hard sayings are a mercy to us. Your hard sayings teach us your ways and ways that we need to hear and acknowledge with our words and our life and our trust. I pray that you would help us to realize the 
the, the right place for you to be in our lives is on the throne of our life, on the throne of our church as a community. That is where you belong. And glory be to the Father who made this whole plan of the gospel where Jesus came and took the price for us so that we could live a life of joy and happiness in your presence forever. If there's anyone here who is currently rejecting that message, I pray that you would turn their hearts toward you. Because this is not a, a necessarily just a story of judgment. This is a story of redemption and reconciliation. Help us to know how to be reconciled with you with our daily lives. Help us to know how to trust in you in all that we do. May we enthrone you on our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.